Mark chapter 13. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. This passage that we're going to begin, we're going to get it probably about halfway through it this morning, is the reason we started this fellowship in the first place. The topic, what Jesus shared with His apostles so many years ago, had such a dramatic impact on my heart that I began to feel an urgency about these things. That was nine years ago. And I feel a greater urgency today than I did then. But I want you to pay close attention to these things. Listen to what Jesus has to say. And understand that of all the things that He taught, this is among some of the most significant. Mark 13, verse 1. As He was going out of the temple, one of His disciples said to Him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines. And these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be flogged in the synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He's there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed. Behold, I have told you everything in advance. Thank you, Jesus, for telling us everything in advance. Thank You, Jesus, for making these things clear. Thank You, Jesus, for these compelling words. 
Thank you for the foresight and understanding you had as you shared with Peter, James, John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives that night. Knowing that it was not just the four of them who needed to hear these words, but that we would need to hear these words today. Thank you, Lord, that you always had this ability to look ahead as well as back. And thank you for drawing us into that forward thinking. I pray that will impact not only our theology, but our relationship with you and other people. What you have said, may these words be taught to us today and understood as relevant for our time. And may we be motivated by them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the things that I believe epitomizes the holiday season, which we are now into, if you were not aware, (laughs) is a longing for days gone by. We've already watched a couple of specials. See, in my house, once Thanksgiving is over, then the gateway is open, and you can go ahead and decorate and do whatever you want to do, watch, watch Christmas movies and things like that. And we've already watched a couple. And I was sharing with Hannah the other night that one of the things I love about Christmas movies is you get to look back. You know, you get transported. I forced our kids this year to watch A Miracle on 34th Street, the black and white version. <laughs> Last year they went out, we watched the in-color version. It's lame and updated. And but the black and white. <laughs> and I explained to Hannah, I said, you know, part of this is that it was relevant for the time. It was filmed as a contemporary movie. But for us, looking back, it's a movie back in the 40s. And I love that because everything happening, the cars driving by and the streets and the way the people dressed and the way they treated each other and act, the whole thing, it just has this sense of days gone by. And, and I like that. One of our favorite carols recalls the distant past. You may know the story of Still Enoch, Silent Night, which was actually written by a young priest named Joseph Moore and played for the first time on guitar on Christmas Eve, 1816. The reason why they had to play it on guitar was the bellows for the pipe organ had a hole in it. A mouse had chewed a hole in it so the bellows was not working. And so they had to play it on guitar. And I love that because that's early guitar worship. (laughs) Not quite so far back, some of you every year watch A Charlie Brown Christmas, which first aired in 1965. And with it, the wonderful reminders that there was a day when school plays could involve the Jesus story. And even family decorations recall days past, days gone by. We pulled out our tree and our trimmings out of the downstairs storage closet this weekend. And I recall even now, I look back and think as a boy, I recall lying under our Christmas tree and looking up at those big, fat, red-hot blinking bulbs. You know, the fire hazards that we all had on our trees. I think it was one step up from burning candles. (laughs) And they had those star-shaped aluminum tin cups, you know, underneath them to illuminate them more. But those things got red hot as well. So there are numerous burned fingers back in those days. Ah, the good old days. (laughs) Pretty sure they have an iPhone app for that now. But (laughs) the decorating of things. I mean, think about it. What is a Christmas tree if not pining for the past? Just trying to spruce things up a bit. Sorry. Ouch. Sorry, I didn't mean to needle you there, Joe. Let's branch out. There's a lot of looking back and remembering the old days at Christmas time. 
and longing for days gone by and, and better days than these. But ask any four or five year old child what they think about Christmas and they are all about looking forward. It is all about Christmas is coming. And this morning, that's why we're gathered, not just to look back, but to look forward. In fact, so often what we do is we look back to look forward. Even communion, as Don shared, is a looking back to look forward. Jesus says, remember this as often as you take it. But Paul says, as often as we do so, we proclaim His death until He comes. So we find ourselves looking both ways. And we recognize that in looking back, the reason we look back is to be prepared for what's coming. To keep us looking forward. In Mark 13, it is just two days before Jesus' death. He heads out of the city, as was His custom. In fact, you might know this, Jesus never stayed in Jerusalem. He would go into the city during the day, do His ministry, and He always departed the city at night. Sometimes He would stay on the Mount of Olives. Other times He would cross up over the Mount and down to Bethany or Bethphage on the other side. But on this particular night, He heads out of the city, crossing the Kedron Valley and making His way up the Mount of Olives. It's not a, a great distance. And He sat down on all of it directly across from the temple and the temple mount, that massive edifice. And as he sat there on that evening, two days before his death, the future was on his mind. He was thinking about not what would happen in two days, but what would happen in some 2,000 plus years. Not the cross, not the resurrection, but the end of the age. And from this vantage point on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus looks across there at the temple... We hear Jesus say things like, verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verses 23 and 33, He says twice, take heed. Three times in verse 33, 35, and 37, He says, be on the alert. Be on the alert. Keep on the alert. Jesus is calling not just those four men, but all of His people to live life on notice. Gang, we are on notice. We've been given notice. We have advanced notice. And yet so many times we choose to live our lives for today or yesterday. When Jesus says, I am coming and I'm coming quickly. Paul said in Romans 13.11, For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And some think that's a little nutty. You know, something that's a little silly, a little obvious, Paul, you know, that you're closer to salvation now than you were a year ago. Of course you would be. And others might say, might joke, Jesus is coming, look busy. You've probably seen that bumper sticker or heard that comment. Or they challenge. And they say, didn't the early Christians think Jesus' coming was imminent? Didn't they believe He was going to come any second? And that was 2,000 years ago. What makes you think His return is any more immediate than it was 2,000 years ago? The world just keeps going on as it did from the beginning, says the mocker with his mocking. And the problem with that kind of thinking is if you look back to the beginning, the world has never just gone on. The flood is evidence of that. Well, let's listen into the things on Jesus' mind as He is and, the, and the apostles actually leave the temple complex before they end up on the Mount of Olives. And I'm going to give you a few things to jot down along the way this morning. I would encourage you also, there is a parallel uh, companion study to this that is on the website, Matthew 24. We did it in three or four or maybe five parts a couple of years ago. 
there are some things that we talked about in there. Similar teaching. Both are the Olivet Discourse of Jesus there on the Mount of Olives. In that teaching, there are some things I shared that I'm not going to share this morning. There are some things I'm sharing this morning that I did not share at the time. And so I'd encourage you, in thinking these things through, that would be a good passage to go back and, and study through on your own time. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. First thing to note is the structures of man. The structures of man. The temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day was one of the most magnificent architectural edifices of the time. Absolutely stunning. Now, it held to the basic design that God gave David, that that Solomon used, and yet it was greatly expanded upon. Josephus tells us that the temple built by or, or retrofitted by Herod, I'll explain in a moment, was covered on the outside with gold plates, real gold. And when the sun shone on them, it was so bright, literally it could blind you for a few moments. And where there wasn't gold on the outside of the temple was pure white marble, so white that travelers at a distance looking at the temple believed that it was covered with snow. It was a a stunning, beautiful thing. It was the centerpiece of Jewish life. For a thousand years, that's where the people went to worship. Two thousand years prior to Herod's temple being built. That very spot was where Abraham very nearly sacrificed Isaac. There on Mount Moriah. In fact, there are those who believe, and there's evidence for it, that where the Ark of the Covenant stood in the temple was the exact spot where God stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son and where God provided a ram that Abraham and Isaac might sacrifice the ram, foreshadowing the sacrifices that would happen in the temple, foreshadowing the sacrifice of Jesus that ultimately would happen on the cross. The Hebrew story is our story. David bought the land, the Temple Mount, as we know it today, that same land. David bought it from a man named Aruna, or Ornan. Both names are applied to this man for 600 shekels of gold. That's 15 pounds of gold. He paid for it. And I point that out so that you all realize, for those who would argue who has rights to the Temple Mount, you have the title deed in your Bibles. You hold in your Bibles the proof of purchase that King David, a Jew, bought the land from the Jebusite, First Chronicles 21-25 tells us specifically the amount that was paid. David would not just take it for free. He purchased it, saying as we talked about last week, I'm not going to offer anything to the Lord that didn't cost me something. Well, Solomon built the temple there. David bought the land. Solomon built the temple. And the Spirit of God filled it. So full that you may recall the priests couldn't even work in there. They had to leave. Because it was filled with the presence of the Spirit of God. But that temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar's armies, Babylon, on the 9th of Av, 586 B.C., and the people carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. Seventy years later, Zerubbabel and Ezra led people back in two waves and saw to the construction of the second temple. The second temple at first did not measure up to the first temple. In fact, when the foundation was laid... 
We're told in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12, many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation was laid before their eyes. While many of the young men shouted for joy. What was the difference? Well, the young men were just excited that they had a temple again. The old men remembered what the original temple looked like. And there was no comparison. And they wept with great sorrow in their hearts while the young men shouted with joy. Finally, in 19 B.C., so now we're moving ahead about 500 years from the building of the second temple, Herod the Great, trying to curry favor with the Jews, undertook a massive retrofit of the second temple. Some call it the third temple. It's really not a third temple. It's the second temple built onto, expanded upon. And it would take literally 81 years to complete Herod's plans for that temple. By the time Jesus came along, 46 or so years after the construction had begun, the temple itself was built, but the the complex all around it was still under construction. There was still a lot going on. 81 years. It was finished in 63 AD, and it would only stand for seven years before Rome finally completely destroyed it. And so complete was the destruction by Rome that they weren't even sure years after where precisely the temple stood because it was so wiped out. Herod began this whole building project by building a huge retaining wall around the temple, basically creating a a big, huge box there on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is a ridge that runs right through the center of Jerusalem. Mount of Olives to, to one side. Mount Zion to the other, and there's Mount Moriah. And so on that, there was a level spot where the original temple was, but Herod built out this this box with massive stone walls using stones as big as 50 feet long by 25 feet high by 15 feet deep, weighing over 300 tons apiece. Our modern cranes can't lift them. People still aren't exactly sure how they got those stones from the quarry into and onto the temple mount where the walls were built up and the walls were so precise and so tight that without any kind of mortar, they fit in together perfectly. And they held. And they held to this day. You can still see some of those walls that Herod uh, used to retain the mountain there around the temple. It became a 36-acre platform which was twice the size of the platform that it was in Solomon's day. And on this 36-acre platform, Herod's temple stood 150 feet high, 450 feet long, 365 feet wide. It was a huge building. But gang, it was all a delusion of grandeur. We never read anywhere in the Scriptures that the Spirit of God inhabited the temple with one exception, and that was when Jesus went into the temple Himself. And in fact, the Bible tells us that the second temple would be greater than the first. Why is that? Because Jesus entered the second temple. Because Jesus walked the courts of the second temple and was present there. But the temple itself, with all its gold and all its snowy white marble and all its beauty, was just a delusion of grandeur. And when His disciples point out the grandeur of the temple, one of the guys says, Lord, check this out. Jesus is not impressed. His response is interesting to me. He responds both literally and spiritually. Literally, this structure will not stand. 
Not one stone is going to be left upon another. It's going to be wiped completely out. And less than 40 years later, in A.D. 70, under the leadership of General Titus, Jerusalem was leveled. The last survivors were told fled to the temple because it was the strongest edifice in the city. And they fled there for safety. Roman soldiers surrounded it and a drunken soldier apparently threw a torch into the sanctuary where it caught fire. And the ornate wood in the sanctuary caught fire. The cedar beams that that were in there. And it began to burn and to burn hot. And the gold melted down into the cracks between the stones. And so to get the gold out, the Roman soldiers took the temple apart stone by stone. Not one stone was left upon another. What's interesting is in the 1990s, archaeologists unearthed some of these great stones. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen it. There on the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, down on the ground, there's a street that was unearthed, a Herodian street with big paving stones in the street and massive stones thrown off from the top of the temple and they're still piled up right where they were 2,000 years ago. But the literal fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy just 40 years later stands in this chapter for an important reason. If the first two verses were fulfilled literally, then what should we assume about the rest of the chapter? It's going to be just as literally fulfilled. And that's why I believe Jesus played it out the way He did. To respond to the temple, giving a literal prophecy that was fulfilled 40 years later. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're told the only way that you know a prophet is truly a prophet is if he prophesies about something relevant, contemporary, and it happens. Then you know what he's going to be talking about is legitimate. And so Jesus, right here in Mark 13, legitimizes the prophecy of the rest of the chapter in what He says in verses 1 and 2. And that's important to know. A literal prophecy. But gang, it's also spiritual. It's spiritual in that no structure of man can stand. No structures of man ever stand. And I wonder, after this day of scrutiny in Mark chapter 12, as all of the opponents of Jesus came at Him one after another, I wonder if as they were leaving if the disciple pointed out the temple because he was trying to salvage a little bit of the religious structure to which he was so accustomed. This disciple perhaps was saying, Lord, even though our current leaders aren't the cream of the crop, the temple still stands. The temple is still marvelous, isn't it? And it's all coming down. Jesus says it's coming down. Spiritual translation. Your religious structures cannot save you. That's right. Your church traditions. Our traditions can be good. Our traditions serve a purpose. But our traditions cannot save us. Our traditions cannot replace a relationship with God. Cannot replace praise and worship of the Father. Our structures are coming down. The structures of man will fall. Should God tarry, should God wait, there is a day ahead where I, mark my words, the Bridge Christian Fellowship won't be here. Now, Prayerfully, it's because we've all been caught up. But there's no structure of man that can stand. Only the structures of God. God is never impressed with the structures or the institutions of man. Back in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Our structures will not stand. And I love that Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, made this comment. He said, I say to you, 
something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple. You see all these stones? Not one's going to be left upon another, but something greater than the temple is here. Jesus, the greater than the temple, was there in that day and is here this morning. He is with us. And He is the foundation on which all structure should be built, all eternal structure must be built on the foundation of Jesus. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.11, no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Our structures cannot stand. Only that which is built of an eternal substance on the foundation of Jesus, only that will stand. Now, we head east out of Jerusalem. We cross the valley, make our way with Jesus up the Mount of Olives, and there Jesus has a seat, verse 3, as He was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning Him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? They asked Jesus two questions there. When will these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple. This question piggybacking off Jesus saying, not one stone will be left upon another. So when will these things be, Lord? When's the temple coming down? And then question number two, what's the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Understand that the two questions reveal where their hearts were at. What do you mean? The four men ask about the fall of Jerusalem and they ask about the end of the age. What are they doing? They obviously assumed the two would be the same event. That the fall of of Jerusalem would be the end of the age. I mean, it has to be. The temple coming down, that's got to mark the end of all things and and the coming of Jesus as as king. I mean, if this is going to happen, he's got to have an immediate plan, right? Something that's going to happen right after that. And there are those who believe that A.D. 70, the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, actually was all that Jesus was talking about through the rest of the chapter. problem is, all that Jesus talked about through the rest of the chapter did not happen in A.D. 70. And you can look up the history of it. It didn't happen. It didn't happen within seven years of the fall of Jerusalem. It would have to for preterism, that is the belief that AD 70 was the whole entire Mark chapter 13, Matthew 24, Luke 21, it would have to all take place, and it didn't. The only thing that took place in AD 70 is verses 1 and 2, which gives us a sense of the literal fulfillment of the rest of this prophecy which is taking place. They thought this would be the same event. They were wrong. In Mark's account... Aside from what Jesus already said about the temple in verse 2, Jesus' answer goes right to the heart of the question. That is, what are the events leading up to His second coming? Did Jesus come in A.D. 70? Well, some would say, well, spiritually, yeah. But that was... No, He didn't. He didn't. Jesus resurrected, ascended to heaven poured out His Spirit on the apostles, but even that was not in A.D. 70. Right? So the dates are jumbled. It doesn't work. 
except to understand that Jesus is talking about things that we would need to know now, 2,000 years later. You see, Jesus calls His people to live in a state of readiness. He knew, because He's God, He knew that His words would be poured over by disciples, by believers, by followers, even today. And so He spoke these words that we might understand. And that's the second thing to note. Not only the structures of man, number two, the stream of history. The stream of history all the way to the end. That is, all the way to His second coming. Which, by the way, is not a spiritual coming. It is a literal coming. There is nothing in the Bible that indicates Jesus' second coming is anything other than literal. Literally setting feet on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us. So we know that coming is going to be literal. But let's understand a little bit about the stream of history until He comes, verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. What a critical statement. And how absolutely spot on Jesus was. See to it that no one misleads you. Don't don't take the words of man. Don't take the teaching of a person. Not even this morning. See to it that Pastor Rick doesn't mislead you. You check these things out. It is your responsibility, each and every one of you, to have Bibles open and to be processing this and praying it through and knowing what it is the Scriptures say, not what Rick's interpretation may or may not be. Even though I'm right. (laughs) See to it, no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am He, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines, and these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Quickly note this, nation will rise against nation is important. It's not the nation of Rome will rise against all the other piddly nations of the world. This is talking about great nations battling each other. And in Jesus' day, Rome was the only great nation. Everyone else was under the thumb of Rome and was for a long time. It wasn't nation against nation as Jesus is describing here. A kingdom against kingdom. There was one kingdom in those days. This is speaking of a time yet future when country versus country, nation versus nation, and have we not been watching that take place for the last century? We've seen it going on. These are merely the beginning, he says, of the birth pains. Are you aware then of wars and rumors of wars? Does that not characterize the entire age, my entire life? From birth to this point has been characterized by wars and rumors of wars, and not just in my own household. (laughs) Most people in America believe that we are less safe now than we were the day before 9-11. Most of us have that sense. Most of us have been watching... Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, Gaza and the things going on and and the truce that has been called. Of course, 14 rockets flew out of Gaza after the ceasefire. Oops, we just got away from us, I guess. What happened? And by the way, I, I'm not going to talk about that so much this morning other than just to say keep an eye on it, keep watching what's happening in Israel and the Middle East. But I do ask that you continue to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Amen. It's a biblical mandate, it's a biblical command for all of us to 
pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But what about this wars and rumors of wars? What about earthquakes and famines? Well, we talked about that in the Matthew 24 study back in 2009. And what you can do is you can actually literally track the increase of earthquakes. It's unbelievable. And the increase of famines, just over the last century, how it goes like this on a graph. Pretty stunning. The increase of these things. What about false messiahs? People rising up and saying, well, I'm Christ, well, I'm Christ. Washington Post article, June 23rd, 2004. On March 23rd, 2004, more than a dozen lawmakers attended a congressional reception at the Dirksen Senate office building in Washington, D.C. to honor the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, at which Moon declared himself... Note this. This is now in a Senate office building in D.C., at which Sun Myung Moon declared himself to be the Messiah and said his teachings have helped Hitler and Stalin to be reborn as new people. At this ceremony, Representative Danny K. Davis, D. Illinois, wore white gloves and carried a pillow holding an ornate crown that was placed on Moon's head, pronouncing him to be the prince or the king of peace. This is in our nation's capital. Several senators and representatives of our government were present at this ceremony. Moon went on to declare to deliver a long speech saying he was sent to the earth to save the world's six billion people and that emperors, kings, and presidents have all declared to all heaven and earth that he is humanity's savior, Messiah, returning Lord, and true parents. As reported in the Washington Post, June 23rd, 2004. September 3rd, 2012, he died. And he hadn't been seen or heard from since. (laughs) Have you heard of the Million Dollar Messiah? Jose Luis de Jesus Miranda is a 60-year-old former heroin addict and and convict who lives in South Florida and believes that he is the incarnation of the second coming of Christ. His people, and he has a large following in many countries now, they call him everything from the Apostle to Jesus Christ man, giving him entire savings, cars, businesses, and estates, including a million dollar home in a gated community, and his interviews are both startling and frightening. I, he says, am greater than Christ. I teach better than Him. I won't die, even if you tried to kill me. I will be president of the biggest government this world has experienced. I am going to change the whole world. Really, Jose? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. There is only one Christ. There is only one Jesus. And the truth is, gang, these guys pop up all the time. These false Messiah figures. Now some might say, yeah, but they were popping up back in Jesus' day. Haven't they always kind of been there? Haven't haven't we always had wars? And rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and boneheads? Haven't we all of this (laughs) gone on for 2,000 years? So why now are you saying this teaching is so relevant, so critical, and so immediate for us? The key phrase, gang, in Jesus' teaching is birth pangs. Verse 8. 
Odin in the Greek. Odin, which means contractions. If you have a King James Bible, it says sorrows. Not the right word. My wife was not sorrowful as she gave birth, natural childbirth, to our first son, Corey. This was not a sorrowful time. Painful, but not sorrowful. (laughs) And Debbie, I want you to know, I survived that night. I did. (laughs) It means contractions, labor pains. You all know this. How does a woman know she's near the end of a nine-month pregnancy? How does she know? The contractions are more frequent and more intense. Birth pangs, by nature, increase in frequency and intensity. And those are the two things you need to look for with these signs Jesus mentions here. The signs are very telling in that they are birth pangs, which means that they will increase both in frequency and intensity before the end. That Jesus is saying, you should see in these things I'm mentioning, a sharp uptick on a graph of all of these things. Intensity and frequency for a woman giving birth understands the baby is soon drawing nigh. But Odin, the Greek word also means something else. That is translated, by the way, just as often in the scriptures as, as birth pangs. It is also translated, it also means death throes. Death throes. In the same way the increasing intensity and frequency of pain indicates an an imminent birth, we also expect the increasing throes of death. And what's interesting to me is that makes sense because while something is being birthed, something else is dying. While something is coming to life, something else is being put to death. And Paul describes it this way, Romans 8.22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains, Odin, of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. But in that birth experience we're looking forward to, in that, in that birth into the new age and the new things that are coming, and I don't, I shouldn't use the phrase new age, because the kingdom age, better put, birthed into a new thing, there are birth pangs of birth, there are also death throes of the old being done away with. And it's happening simultaneously. And so we should, my friends, expect, and this is something I really want to focus on for a few minutes here that I didn't in Matthew 24. We should expect an increase of pains to be felt among believers. I hadn't really thought about this before. But we should expect as we draw near to the coming of Jesus to feel more pain. Not sorrow. Not sorrow. But labor pains. Pains of a new thing being birthed. Pains being felt among believers. The structures of man, the stream of history, number three, we should experience these pains in the spread of the gospel. The spread of the gospel. Verse 9. Be on your guard, Jesus says, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. And Acts chapter 23 through 26 is one of the first indications of that. Because that exact thing that Jesus said happened to Paul. 
who stood before governors and kings, who was flogged in the synagogues and delivered over as a testimony to them. Verse 10, the gospel, he says, must first be preached to all the nations. Now, I always need to address this verse because there's some misunderstanding here. Because of this verse, some say Jesus cannot come until the gospel is preached to all the nations. But that's not what it says. And this is one of many reasons why our theology of eschatology is so important. Eschatology is your belief about the end times. So our theology of eschatology is what do you believe about the end times? What do you believe about the last days? What do you believe about the coming of Jesus? It is so absolutely critical that we come at this from a biblical perspective because if we don't, and I'm talking taking all Scripture together, if we just pick and choose what fits our theology, we misunderstand what Jesus was saying about the times of the end. Jesus never says the Gospel has to first reach all the nations before He could come get His bride. What did He say? What cannot come before the Gospel reaches the entire world? Matthew 24.14 expands slightly on this and says, This Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the... End will come. Not then the Christ will come. Not the Gospel will be preached first by the church, the world saved, and then Jesus will come for His people. That's not what He says. He says the Gospel has to be preached to the whole world and then the end will come, which means the Gospel will reach the entire earth before the end. But Jesus comes before the end. Jesus comes for His church actually a little bit before the end. We call it the rapture. Simply from the Latin raptus, harpazo in the Greek, the catching up in English. A time when Jesus pulls out because, as you all know, we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. The end will come. Even after the church is caught up, the gospel will still be spreading out to the nations. We are not as important as we thought we were. So we're not important? So we shouldn't worry about spreading the Gospel? No. We are important in that God has chosen through this last 2,000 years to use the church as His vehicle for the spread of the Gospel. And we need to be doing that until the very last second when we're caught up. But we will not finish the task. We will not be the ones who do it. Revelation chapter 7 describes after the church is gone, 144,000 Jewish witnesses spreading out throughout all the earth. I've told you before, that's twice as many missionaries as are present in the world today. 144,000 Jews. Revelation 11 talks about the two witnesses, two amazing prophets in Jerusalem. And in Revelation 14, verse 6, we're told, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So there's a day coming, gang, it's just amazing, when there's going to be an angel flying around going, believe in Jesus! Jesus died for you! Be saved! God pulls out all the stops. Even after the church is gone. If the church has already done its job, then that angel would be one superfluous seraphim. Unnecessary. Why would God fly an angel around if the gospel had already reached the whole world? Why would God place the two witnesses in Jerusalem if the gospel had already gone out? Why send 144,000 witnesses 
throughout the world preaching the gospel if it was already out, if it had already been reached. The truth is, we're going to work right up to the instance we're caught up, and until then, our work, gang, goes on. Jesus, listen to this. Let me put it this way. Jesus is not limiting His coming. He's maximizing the promise that the Gospel is going to get out to the whole world. With or without you, God's going to get it done. But here's what we've got to come back to. The key to maximizing the spread of the Gospel, going back to the birth pangs, the death throes, the key is persecution. The key to the spread of the Gospel on planet Earth is persecution. Verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. It is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. Now, I recently shared, and many of you know this, every apostle of Jesus, with the exception of Judas, who killed himself, the rest of the eleven and Paul all died the death of martyrs. What about John? Well, they tried to martyr John by boiling him alive in oil, and when that didn't work, they exiled him. Sent him off to Patmos, where he received the revelation. You see what happens? Persecution yields the spread of the gospel. What about the intensity and frequency factor on persecution? We've said wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and, and all that's going on. We should see an uptick of these things, right? What about persecution? You all look pretty comfortable this morning. I understand they're metal chairs. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not your persecution. What about that? Are we seeing an increase in that? Barrett and Johnson wrote a book called World Christian Trends, A.D. 33 through A.D. 2200. I want you to hear this. Since A.D. 33, more than 70 million Christians have been martyred. 70 million over the last 2,000 years. The first 10 million in the first couple hundred years. By the way, of those 70 million martyred, 55,871,000 were murdered by the state ruling power. Between 1900 and, and 2000, between 1900 and 2000, more Christians have been killed than in any other time in church history. Did you have any idea? 45,400,000 Christians have been killed in the last 100 years. Over the past decade, it has increased. In the past decade, and we need to keep our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are facing this kind of persecution in prayer, 400 Christians a day are being martyred in the world. 146,000 Christians are killed every year. In the world today. Frequency and intensity gang. 0.8% of all Christians who have been martyred, uh, 0.8% of all Christians have been martyred historically. So it's not the vast majority of Christians. 
You know, if, if uh, what was the number, 70 million Christians have been martyred since, you know, across the 2,000 years, only 0.8% of those, or, or that's only 0.8% of all the, who have become Christians, which is pretty encouraging. Um, that number goes up, the 0.8% of Christians martyred goes up to 2% of all Christian leaders. So, Joe, I'm going to need you to be at the door more often for me. Here, here's the point. You may never personally come to martyrdom. You may never be asked by the Lord to die for your faith. But note this. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us very clearly, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire... To live godly in Christ Jesus, not just to fill a seat in a church. If you truly desire to follow Him and live for Him and be about Him, you will be persecuted. Now, one of the questions that comes up is, why would God allow the death of His own people? You know what the answer is? Grace. Grace. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's because of grace that God allows persecution to those of His own who have been saved. Do you understand how that works? Once you're saved, whether you die a martyr's death, or you die of old age, or you die of cancer, makes no difference. You're saved. You're saved. And you're going to be with Jesus. And God knows this. And He sees the big picture. And so to be able to die a martyr's death for faith in Jesus Christ is not a bad thing because it just sends you home sooner. While the world laughs wickedly thinking we've taken one out or we've taken ten out or we've taken out 146,000. Hey, that 146,000 are now praising God around the throne. And so that's not a bad thing from a true eternal perspective. It's a wonderful thing, a marvelous thing. What's a bad thing is when Christians get comfortable. And we we saw it from the very beginning stages of the church. The early church was cozy in Jerusalem until the martyrdom of Stephen. And when Stephen was martyred, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You know what happens when Christians are scattered? The gospel spreads. The word gets out. Persecution brings about the spread of the gospel. There's an old quote that's been spoken for years and years, 2,000 years in the church, and that is this, the blood of the martyrs is seed. Now let me be very clear to you, there is an absolute difference between a Christian martyr and a Muslim martyr, so-called. And I'm not saying this to bash on Muslims, but just to be honest, a Christian martyr is one who is killed for their faith who is killed simply for speaking the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in hopes that some will be saved. A Muslim so-called martyr is one who kills himself and others in the name of Allah and Jihad. That's a very different thing. That's not martyrdom, it's homicide. So to be a martyr doesn't mean you go out into a mall with a gun and start shouting, Jesus will save you and take people out. That's crazy. It's satanic. True martyrdom is to say, God, I'm in your hands. And if the message of the gospel is so offensive to someone that they would take my life, so be it. So be it. I am willing 
to stand in that place. Now that's serious stuff. I realize it. But the divine reason for persecution is to spread out His witnesses throughout the stream of history while the structures of man are falling all around us. You understand what I'm saying there? Your witness right now in the world is absolutely critical because all the structures the people trusted in are falling apart. People are now and will be in these end days, in these last days, people are looking for something that will stand. A structure they can believe in. You know, even as the first century Jews raced to the temple thinking that structure could save them, they were massacred. There are no structures in the world that can save people, and we're recognizing that. And people are scared to death because of it. So your message is to a world where structures no longer work, where institutions fall and fail. Everything from religion to Wall Street, it's not working. American society, it's, it's crumbling. What do you do? Where do you go? You go to the Gospel. Because it's an eternal structure, a God-built structure, a better city that cannot fail us. But here's the good news. Our witness increases when all we have to live for is Jesus. We could use a little more persecution in this country. Oh, I'm not asking for it. I'm not begging for it. But the reason why the gospel is so rapidly and wildly spreading throughout China is persecution. And the reason why it's in such a lull in America is, I believe, because we're so comfortable. Our witness increases when all we have to live for is Jesus. When we've got nothing else but eternity before us and our relationship with Jesus, our witness gets really strong. And I think that's a reason for an uptick in persecution that we have seen and will continue to see in this world. But here's the good news. You'll never have to stand on your own. Verse 11, Jesus said, when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand about what you are to say. Say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, did the power of the Spirit cease with the apostles? (coughs) Not if He's going to be speaking through us in the last days. And I don't believe God's just going to, in the last days, "Eh, I guess we need a little more Spirit, and turn it back on as if it were a power. It's not a power. He's a He. He's a person and is the Spirit of Jesus Christ who is present with us today just as He was 2,000 years ago. Now understand this though. Jesus said His Spirit will speak through you. His Spirit will speak. You don't have to worry about that aspect of it. You don't have to stress over, wow, I've got to have a, you know, a, a, a text. I've got to have something ready to say. A script. No. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. But understand this, Paul is talking about inspiration in persecution. Don't worry, it's going to be given to you in that hour what to speak. He's not saying, Rick, as a pastor, you can go on autopilot for Sunday morning. Don't study the Bible because it will be given to you what to say. Don't read Scripture because, you know, in the moment that you need it, God's going to just osmosis. He's just going to download it to you. It's not what He's saying. 
And we've got to be very careful about becoming lackadaisical Christians. A.T. Robinson once said, There is no excuse for the lazy preacher who fails to prepare his sermons out of the mistaken reliance upon the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, so what's my part in this? Is there something I can do to be prepared? Should I ever come into that place where I'm called upon to witness? Peter said it in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So all that to say, understand that where there is persecution and the power of God, the gospel will spread. The blood of the martyr is seed. And should we, and I don't know that we will, I think His coming is so imminent, I'm not sure that we will, but should we see the kind of persecution that is happening all around the world here on Whidbey Island? Should we see pastors thrown into jail for what they're preaching? Should we see believers hauled off? Should we see actual martyrdom taking place? Understand before that ever happens that the blood of martyrs is seed. And it is part of the spreading of the gospel. I got a little sense this last week in studying over these things of why Paul could not choose between life and death. Why he... As he thought about it, he said, wow, I mean, to live is Christ, but to, got, to die is gain. Why he chose to go to Jerusalem following in the steps of Jesus, thinking he would be murdered there. Why he chose to claim Roman citizenship, knowing he would be taken off to Rome, and eventually he would be martyred there. Paul chose that route. He wanted to go that way. Why? To die for Jesus. Boy, I want to know Christ in the power of His rising, share in His sufferings, and conform to His death. That's what Paul said. And we say things like that in the church nowadays. It's kind of like, well, that guy's a little crazy. You really would die? For, you want to die for Christ? Yeah. Again, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like this much. <laughs> but I'm starting to get it, gang. That to be among the martyrs, to be among those who you would not compromise your faith for anything. And that is what I, will be, I believe we will be called to in these last days. Verse 14. Just a little bit more and we'll be done this morning. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. By the way, Jesus didn't say let the reader understand. Mark wrote that in. Inspired by the Spirit. To cause us to pause just for a moment and go, don't just jump to conclusions here. You better be sure you understand what Jesus is teaching right here. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Pray that it may not happen in the winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation of God until now and never will. And by the way, verse 19 slams shut the possibility that all these things happen in A.D. 70. What do you mean? In A.D. 70, Josephus tells us one million Jews were slaughtered in the fall of Jerusalem, in the fall of Judea. A million Jews were slaughtered. How many Jews were slaughtered in the Holocaust? Six million. Six times as many. Six times. Now, I'm not saying the fall of Jerusalem wasn't horrific. 
But the difference in terms of the persecution from then till now, and Jesus promised those days will be a tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation of God until now, and never will. Which means if it happened in AD 70, nothing should ever have happened since then. As bad as what happened then. And the Holocaust was worse. And by the way, the tribulation will be worse than the Holocaust. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, He is there, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Quickly, two final things to note this morning, and we're going to finish out this amazing teaching, Lord willing, on Wednesday night. So you might want to come back for that. Who are the elect? Jesus does two things here. Jesus Jesus says, for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Signs and wonders will be shown in order to lead astray, if possible. The elect. Who's the elect? And Christians will say it's Christians. And Christians will be wrong. Jewish Jesus is sitting on Jewish Mount of Olives in Jewish Jerusalem talking to Jewish apostles using Jewish language. Yes, he is talking about future things, but he is using very Jewish language. And the elect, it was understood then as it should be understood now. The elect spoke of Israel, not the church. Aren't we elect? Oh, hang on. Two questions that, that are at the end of this, this section for today is, who are the elect and what is the abomination of desolation? In both cases, Jesus is giving, and this is number four in your notes, he's giving a sign for Israel. A sign for Israel. The elect in this chapter, again, is not the church. How do you know? Because the church will not be present in those days. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say, Pastor Rick, I just totally disagree with you. I don't believe in your rapture of the church. I don't believe in a pre, that is a before tribulation rapture. You just said the church is going to be persecuted. I think we're going to go through all this tribulation stuff. Okay, then I encourage you to go back and listen to a teaching that I gave a year ago today. Why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. And I think I gave, I don't know, four or five hundred points on why. It's like 13 or 14 reasons going through biblically, looking at massive amount of Scripture, why anyone would believe that the church is going to be caught up. And I challenge you, if you disagree with, with me on any of this, go listen to that. Look at the passages. Think it through. Be sure that your theology of eschatology is correct. So that you understand what Jesus is trying to do here in Mark 13. What He's preparing us for. The church will not be present in the days He's describing. And so when He says, for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Well, if the church isn't there, it has nothing to do with the church. The elect is Israel, who are under intense persecution. In this time, Jesus refers to as the tribulation. Signs and wonders will be shown to lead astray the elect. Church will not be present. And I can give you so many reasons for that. I just I don't have time this morning. But the second thing to note about this sign for Israel is the chosen was Israel long before the church ever came along. The elect was Israel first. The Greek word electos means chosen. It does not mean church. 
And the elect, the chosen were Israel. It applied to Israel before the church. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm 105 verse 6 says, O seed of Abraham, his servant, O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. God chose Israel for a unique position in the world and that choice has not ceased. He didn't choose them because they would choose Him. He chose them because for the sake of His own name, for His own purposes. And Romans 11.28, Paul talking about Israel says, from the standpoint of God's choice, of God's electos, they are beloved. i got to show you something else. Keep your finger there. Quickly rush over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Some of you have seen this. In 30 seconds or less, I will prove to you exactly what I've been saying. The book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul is writing, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Okay, The saints who are in Ephesus, mostly non-Jewish. Mostly not having that Jewish background, primarily probably Gentile in in this church. He's writing to them. He says, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, Paul says... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And in Him we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. And He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance having been, note this, predestined according to His purpose who works all things after the counsel of His will to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. And Christians read that and say, see, we're elect, we're predestined, we were chosen before the beginning of time, it is predestination extraordinaire, and that's talking about us. And it's not. All twelve of those verses, Paul, a Jew is talking about us, the Jewish people. Well, fantastic. Where does that leave us? In verse 13, note this. In Him, you also, church. In Him, you also, Ephesus. You also, Gentiles. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Do you see? We were grafted in. The promise, verses 1-12, through are for us, Paul says, the Jewish people. 
And verse 13 and continuing, and those same promises come to you now. Amen. You're part of this too. Amen. I'm not reading anything into it. In Him you also have received what we received by choice, by the election, by the predestination of God. That speaks very clearly of Israel. We are Gentiles grafted in. Romans 11.17 If some of the branches of the olive tree, speaking of Israel, were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. Christians have an obligation to Israel. Because they are the root of all these things, of this book, of Messiah, of our faith. It comes through and by and out of the people that God chose to work through. Jesus Himself, you know, being a Jew. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Peter talking to Gentiles there because he said, For once you were not a people. And now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a sign for Israel, gang. And the elect here is Israel. And when you understand that, these things begin to make a completely different uh, sense, as we'll get into Wednesday night. What is the abomination of desolation? Oh, really, Rick? You saved that for last? (laughs) What is the abomination of desolation? It is a sign for Israel. It is Israel's last and greatest threat. You know their greatest threat is not Hamas. It's not Hezbollah. It's not Egypt. It's not Syria. It's not Iran's nuclear program. That is not the greatest threat that faces Israel. The abomination of desolation is, will be. And the abomination of desolation, let the reader understand, is the absolute key to understanding the whole section of teaching. And I'm going to tell you about it Wednesday night. (laughs) Let's stand up together. Let's leave. Joe, can you leave the light on just for a moment? There's so much ground to cover in the Olivet Discourse in, in seeking to understand these things and to know what Jesus is saying. But I, I want to finish with this. I just want to say to all of you brothers and sisters, look forward and be encouraged. I think you can tell by what we've talked about and by the frequency and the intensity of so much going on that we are in this season. Jesus said you're not going to know the day or the hour, but we can know the days and the seasons. And we are in this time. We are truly, I believe, in these last days. And we've got to be eyes wide open. But not discouraged because of all the intensity and the frequency of these difficult things happening. But encouraged as we look forward knowing that the end is near. Knowing that our Jesus is soon to come. Knowing that the promises remain for the church. And I think that the importance here is understanding 
that these are days of endurance. Jesus said in verse 13, the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. He says in verse 23, take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. I've put you on notice. These things should not overtake you. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, they should not overtake you like a thief in the night. A thief in the night comes and steals from those who are asleep. But we are not of the night. Paul says, we are sons of light, sons and daughters of day. And so we're called to live sober, eyes wide open, and prepared to live in these last days, joyfully looking forward to the blessed hope and the great appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to read you something of hope as we end this morning. Four promises that Jesus gave to four separate churches that are all present in these days. Revelation chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus said, Hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces as I also have received authority from my Father and I will give him the morning star. That's amazing. Jesus takes a prophecy that was applied to himself and he says, if you overcome, if you hold fast, I'm going to apply that to you. I'm going to have you share in my authority in the kingdom. Wow. He says down in chapter 3, verse 5, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels Jesus says in verse 10 of chapter 3 because you have kept the word of my perseverance I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth and he's talking about the rapture I'm going to keep you from it. From the tribulation. He says, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. And finally, Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Amen.